Thanks for tuning into the ES First podcast. We'd love to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. So take a minute to hop on over and give us a like or a follow. And of course, if you're ever in Excelsior Springs, stop on by. We can't wait to welcome you home. It's my first Father's Day without my father, and many of you know what that's like. But last year, I had the incredible honor of preaching Father's Day, and I got to, my sermon was titled, All the Things My Dad Taught Me. And uh, if you get an opportunity to go back and listen to that, if you know my father, if you've ever wondered about the kind of father my dad was, or you're just trying to figure out who he was because you're just now hearing of him and you're new here, you can go back and listen to that. I think it's a phenomenal sermon, personally. Uh, I did cry most of the sermon, if you were here. And then he said, thank you, Brandon. I now feel like I'm up there with Jesus Christ to like preach about Jesus and preach about my dad. But anyway, so you can check that out. And I think all of us in one way, shape, or form, miss my dad, and he was an incredible father to so many of us. And Paul, in his scriptures, was writing to a church, and he said, you have many teachers, but you don't have many fathers. And there's one father who is the person who took care of you spiritually, and that was my dad for me all my life, and for many of you, that was my dad for you. And so, as we just kind of honor fathers today. I want to take a minute and honor him. And I told myself I wasn't going to cry. Uh, This was the hardest week of trying to prepare a sermon about my dad that I knew I could dance around not crying. You know what I mean? You just try to dance around landmines, but I'm probably guaranteed that I'm going to at one point today talk about my dad in a way that makes me want to ball and not talk anymore. But I'll make it through. Turn your Bibles to Philippians This is our Father's Day sermon. I want to talk a little bit today about fathers and their value and who they are and speak a little message to fathers. So in Philippians chapter 1, verse 2 and verse 3, this is Paul writing. He says this, Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for... Dads today, I thank you for families. I thank you for children that have had fathers. I thank you for all of us that have interacted with your nature through a dad. They've fathered us. They've shown us the heart of God. And some of them are our blood. Some of them are not our blood. But they are phenomenal to us just the same. We honor you, God, for giving us such great gifts as fathers. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wrote down a few things. There's lots of different dads. There's fat ones, skinny ones, ones as big as your head. But I wrote down a few different lists of fathers. And there's young fathers and there's old fathers. Young fathers are fathers who are married, fathers who lost a wife, fathers who are with their children every day, and fathers who have released their children. Some have even buried their children. Fathers who have had a father and fathers that did not. Fathers who have buried a child and children who have buried They're fathers, fathers who are loved and some that feel lost, fathers who know Jesus and those that do not. Fathers have incredible worth, and no matter the circumstance, they are the glue that holds humanity together. And today, we honor fathers from all walks of life. One thing that I'm just kind of astonished about fathers is that they are investors. Fathers, the whole role of a father is investment right? Mothers nurture, fathers invest, right? Because we don't necessarily have to nurture. We don't have to be there every second of the day, but we get a choice to invest. 
And fathers invest in children, whether they're their blood or not, a deposit at a time. And it comes from the treasure of who they are and it yields great dividends. So think about this. A father carries around a bag of gold. And everywhere they go, they get to interact with people. And have you ever met somebody who's like 90 years old and they're a father to everybody? You know, they just have something grows in a father that after a certain age, maybe their kids are all grown or whatever. You'd be sitting at a restaurant and they're drinking a cup of coffee for three hours, you know, and they're sitting there and they see a child or they see somebody. They're always anxious to make a joke or spend time or create a laugh. It's always an investment. Or they'll tell you a story and they'll talk about, my grandpa once told, told me all these stories about his wife who had passed away when I was in second grade. And we shared a room most summers and it was me in one bed and him in another bed. And he would pray every night on his knees at his bed and he would begin to tell me stories about his wife, Vernita. He said, I first started dating Vernita. I didn't have a windshield in my car. It had been busted out and he couldn't afford to place the windshield. My grandpa didn't have a windshield, but he was not gonna let it stop him from taking Vernita out on a date. He trusted his dopeness that much that he would take a woman out even though he didn't have a windshield. And he always said, Vernita, and I don't know if this is true or not, it's just what I heard from my grandfather. He said, we're driving along. He said, I'm sorry, I don't have a windshield. And he would always say, and she told me, it doesn't matter if you have a windshield or not. I just want to be with you. Take note, ladies, take note. Because if your man didn't have a windshield, you'd be like, you need to do something about this windshield. It's messing my hair up. I don't like all this, right? Mm-hmm, hmm ladies. But fathers have deposits. My grandfather would tell me stories. My dad would tell me stories. My grandfather would honor me in certain ways. He would say, I'm proud of you. I think you're doing a great job. One time he chastised me because I didn't go back out to a job that I had left. And he's like, you need to go out there and make money. You need to go out there and and do it. It's an incredible opportunity. And he told me later, he said, your dad told me why you quit that job. He's like, I'm sorry. He said, I'm proud of you for the choice you made. He stood. He understood the power of deposits because fathers are the glue that hold things together, but they get the opportunity to deposit treasure. There's a difference between a father that just shows up and silently leads and does great things. And that's a wonderful thing that fathers are seen and their presence is felt. But it's another thing when a father realizes his role in depositing into their children. We have enough fathers in this world that will teach their kids how to drink, but won't teach their kids how to pray. That will teach their kids how to go out and blow a bunch of money, but won't teach their kids how to invest. We have enough fathers that will love a bunch of women, but not love their children. But a special father realizes that what they carry can be invested and grow and yield great dividends that nobody else can invest in. No one else can create what a father can create. It's powerful. I was reading a story um, and uh, I thought it was a good little note. It was a how-to. Have you read these how-to books? Like if you're lost in the woods and you should do all these things, you know, if, if you get attacked by a bear, you should, you know, fetal position and curl up and pray to God, right? Supposedly, this is from a Peace Corps handbook, and I thought it was relevant for fathers. It is this. What to do if attacked by an anaconda? 
Now, aren't you curious about this? We were in Belize and they said, tomorrow we're going to take you cave tubing. Tomorrow we're going to take you cave tubing. It's really cool. This cruise ships do it. You get on these rafts and you tie nine rafts together. And I was with Sarah and Dustin and a couple other friends and we're all tied together. And we go through, we have helmets and you have lights on your helmets. And just before we get ready to go, the pastor's kid, who's about 30 years old, he goes, yeah, it's pretty crazy. They just pulled the anaconda out of there <laughs> a couple weeks ago. He was lying, I found out later. But when you're in the middle of a cave and all the lights go out, you start thinking, sharks are the least of my worries right now. So I was curious as what do you do when attacked by an anaconda? Number one, if you are attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Okay, number two. Lie flat on the ground. Got this? Write this down for later. You're going to need this. Number three, put your arms tight at your side and your legs tight against one another. Number four, the snake will come and begin to nudge and climb over your body. Anaconda. Here we go. Number five, do not panic. Number six, after the snake has examined you, it will begin to swallow you from the feet end, always from the feet end. Number seven, the snake will now begin to suck your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still, and this will take a long time. When the snake has reached your knees, Slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth between the edge of its mouth and your leg. Then suddenly rip upwards, severing the snake's head. Number nine. Are you ready? Be sure your knife is sharp. And number 10. Be sure you have your knife. That's the 10 things you do if you get caught by an anaconda. So, they're just really silly little directions, and I thought they were kind of funny. And maybe they are actually in the Peace Corps manual. And if anybody has been attacked by an anaconda, you can let me know how that worked out. Okay? For me, I would probably run. The funny thing about the... <laughs> for those that know Johnny, my brother Johnny, he swims in the ocean and surfs in the ocean. And then when he's done surfing, puts a bunch of bait out and catches eight-foot sharks. He sent me a picture of an eight-foot shark. He's like, I got this shark. It's my largest one yet. Just before this one, we had an eight-foot hammerhead all the way up to the beach, and then it broke the line. And I was like, cool story, bro. Is there a pool in your neighborhood? Can I come down and cool off in the pool, not the beach anymore? Um, my brother Johnny, we went Thanksgiving, and Uncle Ryan caught a nurse shark. It wasn't eight-foot, but it was a hefty shark. And we pull it in, we reel for like an hour. I'm just watching, you know, because... I've been in anaconda waters, and I'm just not prepared to handle that again. Johnny gets it up on the beach, and, and Ryan's like reeling it up, and he's like, what do we do now? Because we're all newbies. We've seen pictures of Johnny with eight-foot sharks. Not sure what to do at this point. The shark just starts like bassing all over the, you know, like a bass went in the boat, except on the beach. Johnny picks this booger up by the tail. 
And he's like, all the stuff's back at our, our camp. So we run like probably a half a mile to a quarter mile down the beach. Ryan's got the pole attached to the shark. He's got that. I've got everybody else's stuff, like a good, you know, manly man. <laughs> Johnny grabs the shark by the tail. And it's like passing around. And we're all running. And Ryan's running, trying to keep up with the shark. And I'm running with the stuff because I don't want to miss it. That's my brother. There's not really a playbook. What to do with a shark when you get him in the water. There's not really like a playbook for what happens when you face an anaconda. Everything is kind of up in the air. And for men, fathers, what happens is we're told, be a man. We're told, be a good father. Stand up, show up, make sure you're there. Make sure you make deposits. But then, what happens when the kid shows up? When the relationship is severed? When things don't go as planned and you're like, somebody's like, hey, did you read the 10 steps and how to be a good father? It's like, yeah, but I don't know how to make it work in this. I don't understand. I'm like, I just feel like I want to pick up the kid by the ankles, let him flop around and run down the beach. I don't know what to do. And then you just kind of make it day by day, trying to figure out how to be the best father, how to follow all the 10 steps, how to make everything happen exactly. For mothers, it's so much easier because they have whole books for your kids. What to expect while you're expecting, before you even have a kid. What to expect in your first year, your ninth year, your 10th year. What to happen when your kids finally don't want to talk to you anymore. What to do this. For fathers, it's like, get out there and do something, bro. There's no playbook. We just have to hump it on how to be a good father. I think that this is why fathers are so spectacular. It's an unwritten script that they get to write every single day of their life. And if they find out what's valuable for the lives of everyone around them, they're able to do it along the way. The problem is that oftentimes we feel like an anaconda has got us all the way up to the knee and we can't find our knife. We can't figure out what is it. I mean, number nine, number 10. All we know is that we were supposed to sharpen that booger and now we can't find it. And so what happens for us as men is that we become very silent. We're cool with being silent anyway. And me, I'm a pastor. I know how to talk a lot. But most men, they just shut up, figure out their role, do what they're supposed to do, and make sure the anaconda doesn't swallow them whole. And along the way, we're told not to talk about feelings. We're told not to talk about issues. We're told not to talk about stuff. Don't bring it up. Don't do this. Why? Because then it makes you look like less of a man. It makes you look like less of a father. I heard one guy, he said, I went to my wife and I finally, I was like, you know what? I'm having a hard time. And he's like, I finally got up enough guts to tell her I'm having a hard time, hoping that she would help me and that we could come up with a solution together that she might be there for me. And she looked at me in the face, said, man up, and walked out the door. And we're told to be good fathers, but nobody knows how to tell us how to be good fathers. Nobody knows how to tell us what's valuable and invaluable. We just have a bag full of treasure and we figure out by trial and error how to make it work for the next generation, hoping that when we're 90 years old, we'll have it figured out 
And that when we passed, everybody would go, he was a really great father. He was a really great dad. I loved him. He was always there. He was spectacular. All the while, there's no playbook for fatherhood. Even the people that tell you how to prepare for it, like an anaconda attack, can't prepare you completely. And so in Philippians, Paul is writing to a group of people, a church, church of Philippi. Those are Philippians, kind of like America, Americans, right? Philippians. And he's writing to them and he greets them. And the first thing that he wants them to know is like, he's like Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all God's holy people and Philippi and everybody everywhere, overseers and deacons, everybody. And he greets them. He says, grace and peace to you from God, our father. Jesus worked so hard to present God as Father, that you would know God as Father. And even in realizing that God is a Father and that He's good and He has your best intentions in mind, He created you and He designed you, even in that, and you go, Well, yeah, I can look to God. He's a great Father. It's hard to determine what God has done and who He is and out there. And like, could you just show up and tell me something? But Paul says, Grace and peace to you from our Father. And so many of us are trying to figure out how to be fathers and we forget that God is actually fathering us. And his intentions for you are twofold. They are grace and peace. In Christmas time, we always say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. And we think that means that we aren't dropping bombs on each other. We think that means there's no fighting and no war and all that stuff. And by all means, it can include that. But what really God is saying is that I want peace to be known between me and you. Because oftentimes in fatherhood, you feel like you're all alone. And yeah, you got a support system. You got a spouse and you got kids and you got friends and you got all this stuff. But deep down, you feel that you have missed out on this part that God himself has extended to you grace and peace in his relationship with you. Grace is a powerful thing because it doesn't depend on you. Men like things to depend on them, right? Right, men? We like to take out all the variables and make sure that it depends on us. I don't like to be in a situation that I'm not in control of. Don't bring me into a room and be like, surprise! Like, nah, bro, you need to prepare me. I need to know what's going on because I don't want to be surprised. I don't want to come home and find a big mess. I don't want to come home and the house blown up. I don't want to drive the car into the driveway and the car lights on fire. I want to be prepared. For those that don't know, my car caught on fire this week. Don't worry, it's just my paint wagon. So it's done for. It was on its last leg anyway. But that was an exciting little adventure for me and Judah to film and then to watch the firefighters put the van out. And he says, hey, he's like, oh, dad. I'm like, what? He's like, I left my socks in there. Yeah, buddy, I think they'll be okay. It's just a little smoky. We want everything to be dependent on us. When God is saying, look, I want everything to be dependent on me. Sounds like a good dad, doesn't he? If you're going to succeed or fail, I want me to be in the mix. If you're going to make it to heaven, I want me in the mix. In the Old Testament, he calls Abraham. He's like, go to a place that I'll show you. In other words, you should start going and I'll figure out the details and it'll depend on me. He said, if you'll do what I say, I'll make a covenant, a promise with my life 
with you, that I'll be good to you, that I'll bless you, that I'll make your name great, that great things will happen for you. And people curse you, then I'll take them out. When people bless you, then I'll bless them. This is what happened for Abraham. And so God knew that Abraham couldn't keep the promise. He knew that he was weak. He knew that he was frail. He didn't have all the answers, as great as Abraham was. So what did God do? He put Abraham to sleep and then had a blood covenant with him. So he makes this promise with Abraham, and it takes two people to make this promise to each other. I'll do this for you and you do that for me. Yeah, blood covenant. What he does is he's like, Abraham, let's make this covenant, bro. Like blood, blood promise. And he's like, Psst. he puts him to sleep. And then God makes the promise and does all the things. And then wakes Abraham up. He's like, it's done. He goes, what happened? I, I didn't get to swear or do anything. I didn't get to spit in my hand, cut blood out, whatever. He's like, he's like, nah, I swore by myself. Because I know that I'm the only thing that doesn't change. And dads are always trying to figure out how to make things consistent and those things won't change. And if they change, they'll change when I want them to change. And they'll be directed and it'll be great. And then we'll know what's going on and we'll be prepared. And that way, if an account comes, my knife will be sharp. And God's like, cool, except for that's not the way life works. So he says, what I'm going to do is amongst all the transitions, amongst all the change, I'm going to give you grace so that when you fail, you can go, I'm sorry, I failed, but my promise still holds true. That when you feel like you tried all you could do, but you just weren't enough, you came up short, God goes, yeah, but I give you grace, my promise, my nature, who I am to you. I give that to you and it doesn't change. If you feel like a failure, you feel like you let everybody else down and there's nothing worse that you can do. You feel like crawling in a hole and running to hide. God goes, it's cool. We got some work to do, but I didn't change. I have grace for you. And so he sends Jesus and Jesus is the interactor, the broker for this grace. He pays for it. He handles it so that God can interact in grace. So when Paul writes, what he wants you to know is grace and peace to you. God gives you his grace, his power, his relationship. It does not change. He says, I give you grace and I give you peace. As long as it's between me and you, it's peace between us. And half the work of being a man is figuring out if God even likes you. I know God likes my wife. I know God likes my kids. But does he like me? See, most of our lives as men are lived out in question, in wondering, trying to control what we can control because we're afraid of the unknown. God says, I give you grace. And our problem is that we have so many enemies to God's grace. We feel guilt when it comes to God's grace. We feel guilt about not measuring up. We feel guilt about not being able to live the playbook. And here's some of those things that we feel about. The first one is this. Men have anxiety. It's not the same as what everybody else's is, what everybody thinks, and they're usually cool, calm, and collected, and whatever. But anxiety is a very real thing in men. They carry it in specific ways. But here's what we have to know about that anxiety is that men feel, 
I know God loves me, but I'm afraid of doing the wrong thing. It's that I know in my mind that I'm loved by my children, but I'm afraid that I might do it wrong. I know that my wife loves me. What happens when she doesn't, if I do it wrong? I know that I'm doing a good job at my work, but what happens when I don't? It's this anxiety and push and pull. It happens in the soul and it tears us apart. The next one is worthlessness. And they say statements like this. My wife deserves better than me. My kids deserve better than me. I'm trying to be good for God, but I know that I'm not enough for him. I'm trying to be a good man. I'm trying to contribute to society, but it's not enough. What happens when I try with everything and I'm burnt out and I'm at the end of myself, but it's not enough and enough people come through and they kick you when you're down and it just adds to your worthlessness. And then the standards that we've set for ourselves as men, what happens is if we're like, I got to do this. I got to provide and I got to save. We got to have a future and we got to go on vacation and we got to, we got to make sure that, that the bills are paid and the power's on and the internet is up. So that way we can play call of duty all night long. I mean, we have all of these things. And when one of those things fall through, they go, man, I am worthless. What happens if somebody finds out that I'm not a man of worth, that I am worthless? What happens when my wife finds out that I'm not all I cracked up to be? What happens years from now when my kids find out things about me that I'm not as big and as powerful? What happens if they grow up and the facade is gone and I'm not the superhero anymore? I'm just a man. I'm just a regular guy hacking it out. And it's these guilty things that go against the grace of God that we feel worthless. The next one is uncertainty. Everyone faces this. Everyone faces all these, but it's just specific to men today. Uncertainty. Am I really a Christian? Does God really love me? I hope I make it to heaven. If God could just talk to me out loud, tell me. If God could just connect with me and show me something, if he could just knock me off my horse like he did Paul, if he could just say anything to me, just anything. The uncertainty of what's going to happen in the future. If God could just tell me what I'm supposed to do, if he could just tell me how it's going to go, how is this going to play out, if God could just make me a roadmap, I'm good with maps, but I'm bad with uncertainty. If you could just give me 10 steps and what happens when an anaconda swallows me, I'll make sure the knife is sharp. No matter how ridiculous it sounds, I just don't want the uncertainty. I'm trying to make it work both ends. I'm, I'm hustling here and hustling there. I'm trying to express love to my wife, and I'm not sure how to do that. I'm trying to tell my kids that I love them, but I don't want weird things to happen to them. I'm just trying to protect them, and I want them to grow up, and I've got to be strong, and i got to be firm, and it's just so uncertain. What kind of world are we creating for our children? I'm just so uncertain what's going to happen. And so we shut up. We stop talking. We just hope that maybe that there's somebody who can show us the playbook to get past uncertainty. The next one's dryness. I'm not enthusiastic about anything anymore. When I was younger, I had all these dreams and I realized that they're not going to happen. 
I was places I was going to go and these wonderful things. And, and I thought, wow, that'd be nice. That'd be so cool. And if I just work here a little longer, then maybe I could get to that. And then that fell through. And what happened? I thought I'd be married 50 years, but it just turns out I was married 12. I thought my kids were going to love me forever, but now they think I'm the enemy. They don't want to be around me. They're just running away and they believe lies. And, and I haven't seen my kid because they're taken away from me. What do I do? Where's the playbook? So many hits, I'm less and less enthusiastic. I need God to come and show me, speak to me, ignite a fire in me again. I remember when I was saved, I felt so brand new, but I don't even know that I am passionate about God anymore. I mean, they play those songs and it's so loud and it's just smoky and I just want to crawl in a hole. What happens when you get dropped? What happens when you have to learn how to love your wife again? What happens when your wife doesn't love you anymore? What happens when you're not sure you want to go on, not sure you want to stand up and face another day? What happens when the dryness of life begins to rot your bones and you become brittle and frail? The next one is depression. Depression is a tough thing for men because we're told to keep it all together. When we do bring it up, we feel like we got like one depression card to play. And then once that card is used, then we can't bring it up again. Because who would I be if I just keep whining about this same card over and over and over again? I can't take it to God because God will think I don't have any faith. I can't bring it to my spouse because I got to handle this. I got to carry this. And then that load just becomes more and more of the same depressed thing and becomes men shutting up and carrying a load as opposed to expressing the truth and saying, I need healing in this area. I need life in this area. And the same person who they fell in love with and they trusted and they gave themselves to then goes, I don't want that. I don't love you like that. I'm not attracted to you like that. I can't open myself up to you like that anymore. It becomes this perpetuating thing for men to have to carry and deal with. It's unspoken and it's unsaid, but these are all us not trusting in the grace of God and living in the guilt of life. And what God wants you to know is it doesn't depend on you to live in his grace. That it doesn't depend on how good you were. It's not like some kind of interaction. You didn't hold up your into the contract. It's all that. He says, I swore by myself that my grace was enough for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul is crying about it in the Bible saying, I have all these things and I'm in a prison and I'm going through all this. Can you just do something? And God says, no, I can't fix that. But I tell you what I will do. Every time you're weak, I'll be strong. Every time you have emptiness, I'll make you full. Every time that you can't add up, I will add up. And when you're weak, I will be strong. This is the grace of God that if anybody else in the world can't be strong for you, which most of them can't, God can. And so why don't we receive this grace the way we should? Why don't we receive this direction? Why don't we walk in this grace every single day 
when grace is the power over that guilt that you feel, it's because there's a few enemies to grace. They're this, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a really shiny thing. Okay? Because what it means is that you can become all that God created you to be and that you can help others with your wealth, that you can become something because God has put drive in you and that you can create value for others. I think that's a wonderful thing. I love our country. Okay. But what I hate about our country is this. Well, you know, you just can't say anything. I'm a self-made man and you got to get out there and do for yourself and you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But it's this idea that I'm so self-made that I do for myself that I become and I do and I whatever and I'm going to do something great for God. I, 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 and it becomes this self-righteousness. And what happens is, is the more you buy into that apart from God is that you want to transfer it to everything else. You want to be self-righteous for your spouse. You want to be self-righteous for your kids. You want to be self-righteous for your boss and your work and your company and what you're building. And self-righteousness is the enemy of this leaning on God's grace. You're outwardly perfect. I got everything together. I wake up at five in the morning and I get up and I don't like to be any different and everybody else is still sleeping and thank God I'm up. I'm out here on this grind. It takes me four cups of coffee. I work hard for my family and I'm so self-righteous, but inwardly you are deteriorating and you can't come to God with your inward deterioration because it would make your outward perfection look bad. That's the self-righteousness I'm talking about. We buy into an American dream instead of a God's dream. We buy into a perfect life at the soccer game. The right car, the right chair. I got a good chair for the soccer game, just so you know. People are jealous of me. I have a special umbrella that attaches to my chair. I'm killing the self-righteous soccer dad life. I want everybody to know that I'm doing it just right, that I'm doing a good job. I want people to look at my kids and go, man, you're a great dad. That feels good to me. But the minute I substitute that for relationship with the power that can make me whole in every part of my life, I have made a dire mistake. We are self-righteous and we turn against the grace of God. Here's one. Self-defeat. It's kind of like step two of self-righteousness, okay? Because eventually you're going to let yourself down, right? Something's going to happen, and then you're going to be like, yeah, I messed it all up. I guess, you know, I'm not as good as I thought I was. I thought I had. You can hear this story. You can write, read biography after a biography of people who made themselves great and then faced downturn. Why? Because it's just the way life goes. You have ups and you have downs. You have highs and you have lows. But what happens is that you... And I can endure because of the grace of God. You're going to have high moments. You're going to have low moments. But what happens is when you're self-righteous is that you have self-defeat. It caused you to turn your back towards, didn't I do all this for you? Wasn't I good for you? Wasn't that good enough? I was just doing what I was supposed to. I was going to work every day and I was trying to do my best and I gave my 10% to the church and I helped other people. I tried to be a really good person and this is what I have to face. There's a reason why the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. There's a reason 
But there's a time and a season for everything. Because God displays his faithfulness to you based on his grace, his promise. But you will live in self-defeat if you do it yourself. We fail. And then what happens is when we fail, we run from God. For a couple different reasons. Either we're not convinced of his goodness. We fail. And we go, God, you're not good. Or we fail and we run from God in shame. Say, I'm not good enough to receive your grace anymore. I'm not good enough to receive your love anymore. Self-defeat. Here's one. Self-contempt. Now, this is the opposite of grace because it disguises itself as holiness. Right? There's whole like sections, denominations. It's like, you're just an old, dirty sinner. Self-contempt. They want to teach you how to be broken down for God. That God calls you his one chosen people, says, I'll bless you, make your name great. He says, I'm going to make you a, a great race of people. And I'm going to create something valuable out of you. I gave my son to die for you. Now be a low down, rotten worm. That's what they tell you. There's even one song. You probably even heard the chorus of it, but you don't know the verse. Right? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. And that's such a great song. In the verse, it says that you would come and die for such a worm as I. And there's enough people that want you to stay a worm. And God's like, no, I'm going to. When you get to heaven, I'm going to throw a feast. When you get to heaven, we're going to have a banquet. As a matter of fact, he starts telling stories about people that were lost and ran away from their father. And the the father of the prodigal son brought him home, even though he was the worst sinner, and said, get the ring, get a robe, kill the fatted calf. He says, it's like a ruler who goes out and he has this banquet. And he says, go invite everybody. And he goes out and invites the kings and the nobles and all that stuff. The servants come back and they say, sir, master, nobody has come. And he has an empty table. God has an empty table. He says, go out and find the lame, the broken, the sick, the diseased, the less than, and bring them and sit them at my king's table. So if you think that you can self-defeat your way into heaven, you are wrong. You're going to have to learn how to sit at the table, how to get the right fork, which pinky up when you have the cup. You're going to have to learn how to be royalty if you want to operate in God's kingdom. Enough of that self-defeat talking about, oh, well, I'm just a sinner. I'm just trying to make it. I hope someday, maybe, I don't know. I'm just so rotten. I can tell you about my life and I'm still struggling and it's so terrible. And God's like, no. Stop living in self-defeat. You can't even understand my grace. All you understand is your self. Self Self-righteousness, self-defeat. Starting to have a common thread here. And it's all about you. Stop that. God doesn't want that for you. How do I know that? He sacrificed the darling of heaven for you to have a new mind, new body, new life, new soul, 
So when we get to heaven, this is what we think. Because men, we're such achievers. We're just so on our own. We're going to get to heaven and be like, when we get to heaven, everybody's going to be up there doing that woman stuff, where praising and worshiping. Even the angels are kind of feminine. and like, ah, Jesus, holy, holy, holy. But I'm going to be on the back wall like this. That's what I'm going to do. Everybody else can worship. I'm going to make sure that Satan don't try to make an entrance up in here and do his thing. And we're so self-focused. When you get to heaven, God's not going to go, you know what, there's some bad apples in here. He's not going to go, you know what, give the scorecards out. How much did you do to earn this dinner here? How much did you put in? How much did you work to really receive and get my love? He's not going to do that. You're not going to be so rotten that God's going to be like, yeah, they got it mixed up. You can go to hell. Because in order for you to be God's, there's one option, dead or alive. That when you become a Jesus follower, when you walk into relationship with God, he doesn't take you from kinda, work harder, get the list right, follow the playbook. What he takes you from is death to life. Death to life. So when you get to heaven, even though you have died, you are going to be alive. When you live life here on earth in the power of God's grace, you're no longer scorecarding it up. You're no longer trying to have your self-righteousness. What happens is, is you go from fully dead to fully alive. The problem is that you're living in things that God's grace has provided for your life. You're living in anxiety. You're living in uncertainty. You are living in your depression. You're living in your scorecard of life, unworthiness. And God's saying, no, 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 no. I brought you to newness of life. I wish you could just appreciate the relationship. You want to know why it feels like that for God? Because he's your father. I don't have a scorecard for Judah. He's my son. I don't have a scorecard for Reagan. She's my daughter. I don't have some kind of like add up thing for my spouse. She's my bride. And that's the same way you are. The problem you run into is you think you're better than God. I got this. I can handle it. I can carry it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a good Christian. I don't do all the things that those guys are doing. Or maybe it's, I'm just an old sinner. I'm just trying to do my best. And, you know, maybe they can use me at the church to do something. But hopefully maybe we'll get to the, the end and God will say, you did good. And guess what? You didn't do good. Because it's either death or life. It's receive the gift or don't receive the gift. It's walk into newness or stay in death. That's it. 
And if you're going to walk into life, you get to be his child. He is your father. And maybe, just maybe, this Father's Day, you can get an idea of what it's like. Whether they got you the right gift, whether they messed up the hamburgers on the grill, whether they took you to the perfect dinner, whether they got you the vacation, whether you come home and the whole house is burnt down because your daughter left her curling iron on. That you could understand what being a father is like to God. That he is toward you, he is for you. And when he says, my grace is sufficient, there's not a thing you could do. There's not a place that you could go. There's not a distance you could run that's so far from God that he is not your father. And you have to receive that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? There's a verse that says that God is returning the hearts of the children to their fathers. It's prophetic. It's like this, it's like story. It's like that, that's awesome that God's restoring relationships and God will do that. God will do that. But I think deep down what God was trying to get at was he was trying to help you understand how much he loves you and he can restore and return your heart back to him that he loves you so completely that there's not a a thing that could break it. He loves you. So today he is restoring your heart to his and he wraps you up like a father who takes his son fishing and they talk about the deep things of life. Like a father who goes out, sits down and says, hey son, and even though not many words are spoken, there's something about a father who's close to his child that is restoring things that can't be spoken with words. It's restoring things that can't be mended by conversations. It's just the love of the father towards you. Could you receive this grace, the love of God today in greater measure? It's for all of us. It's for all of us. But God loves you, Dad. God loves you, Dad. If you feel alone, God loves you, Dad. If you feel broken, God loves you, Dad. If you feel tired, God loves you, Dad. If you feel misunderstood, God loves you, Dad. If you feel confused and uncertain about the future, God loves you, Dad. If you don't understand the past, and you wish somebody could bring some clarity. God loves you, Dad. And so we pray for fathers today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these dads in the room. We thank you that what you're doing in their life is so spectacular that there hasn't been a playbook. But you said in your word that no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those that love him. There's no playbook for what you're writing their lives to be. It's so unique to them. It requires relationship. Bring the heart of God to their heart. Let today be marked with difference. Let today be marked with a moment where they say, yes, yes, I'm dearly loved. Yes, I'm weak, but he is strong. Yes, his grace is sufficient for me. I'm tired of trying to be good enough grace and peace to you today. We love you and honor you, fathers. 
And we give you glory, God, for being the ultimate father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here. And fathers, we really do love you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God that's come forth in this place. Let the gifts, let the food, let our fellowship and our friendship be deep as we fall in love with you in a greater way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.